Hello, good evening. My name is Karina McGlynn. I'm the Director of Creative Writing here at Interlochen Center for the Arts. And on behalf of the school and in partnership with the wonderful National Writers Series, I'm thrilled to be introducing the poet and essayist Ross Gay. In Ross Gay's wonderful essay collection, The Book of Delights, he writes, in almost every instance of our lives, our social lives, we are, if we pay attention, in the midst of an almost constant, if subtle, caretaking. That care, the act of paying attention, is everywhere in Gay's writing. When he considers complicated and uncomplicated joys in poems like Ode to Sleeping in My Clothes or Ode to Drinking Water from My Hands, a joy he writes which today in the garden I'd forgotten, I'd known and more forgotten, and remembers it now in the occasion of the poem. Ross's writing values the power of staying present, staying aware, of positioning ourselves in places of wonder, as he asks in his new collection of essays inciting joy. What if, we, if wonder was the ground of our gathering? On this beautiful spring day, we're thrilled to be gathered here with you all to celebrate the delights of Roske's writing. Roske is the author of four books of poetry, against which, Bringing the Shovel Down, Beholding, winner of the Penn American Literary Gene Stein Award, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. His first collection of essays, which was our common read here at Interlochen this year, The Book of Delights, was released in 2019 and was a New York Times bestseller as well. Uh, his new collection of essays, Inciting Joy, was released by Algonquin in October of 2022 and is available for purchase, as many of you have already found out, up front along with his other titles. We are so excited to have formed this special partnership with the National Writers Series. Please help me welcome to the stage our host for the evening, Ari Mokdad, the Education Director with National Writers Series. Please give a warm interlock and welcome to Ross Gay and Ari Mokdad. Good evening. Hello. Well done. It brings me so much joy to see the sun, the bees coming back out again. And I'm really yeah. excited, Ross, to be here with you tonight. Same. Yeah, thank you for doing it. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read a little bit and then we're going to dive into a conversation. And then you all can ask questions too, eventually. Eventually. <laughs> so this is a book called Inciting Joy. I kind of describe a little bit. I'm going to read the introduction, I decided. Um, and you'll kind of get what, what I'm trying to get at. And this is called, all the essays are called incitements. This is called the first incitement. 
<clears throat> I've had the good fortune in the past several years since shortly after the publication of my third book of poems, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, and probably again with my book of essays, The Book of Delights, to have had numerous and sustained conversations about joy. These conversations might begin during question and answer sessions, in interviews, or even in the book signing line. I'll never forget a woman at a reading in a public library in April of 2016 in Claremont, California, one of those weird, beautifully ugly 60s California buildings. It was a rancher of a library, maybe with some faux stone on the front, maybe white brick. I suspect she was in her late 60s or early 70s. And as she asked me to inscribe catalog, she was crying just a little bit, not very able to talk. And she asked quietly, and she said quietly, wiping her face, I didn't know you could write about joy. Or another time, this one from an undergrad at a reading I was giving, who about midway through a Q&A said something along the lines of, I've always been told that you can't write about joy because it's not serious. And a professor at another school asked, as much for the benefit of his students as it was a challenge, though that might be giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I'm practicing doing more of. When all this is going on, he held his hands up as though to imply war, famine, people all over the world in cages or concentration camps, some of them children, disease, sorrow immense and imperturbable, it only getting worse and worse and worse. Dude had big hands. Why would you write about joy? The implication, of course, is that joy does not have anything to do with everything in that guy's big hands or even that joy is the opposite of what's in there, which I guess is a reasonable notion given how joy is often imagined to be the result of organizing our closets and bookshelves or getting the new Tesla or winning the big game or acing the test or getting a promotion or getting our dishes sparkling clean. Given that joy is often imagined as the result of some accomplishment or acquisition, something nice you get out there and do, something nice you go get yourself. Joy, the thinking goes, is that room at the top of a flight of stairs that, upon entering, washes you with clean air and glad music and comfy furniture and gentle warmth emanating from the white pine floors, suffused with light pouring in from the enormous windows with a sweet window seat where you can read a happy book. Sounds nice. The joy room the thinking goes, is snug with every good and nice and cozy thing. Oh, too, this is very important. This sanctuary of joy has a very strong lock. Think Tom and Jerry, 10 or 15 latches and deadbolts and chains and all the rest. For when heartbreak, which it should be noted, usually lives in the filthy back corner of the back room of the basement, where the stone walls are always wet and flickering with roaches and the drain with the furry green stuff crawling from it never all the way screws down, gets loose and comes sniffing, sniffing around the keyhole, throttling the door, trying to get in. Perhaps in the form of your father dead or your mother despondent or your cousin who shot herself in the chest or your buddy stabbed to death or your dutiful and troubled mind or the most beautiful ball player you ever coached at last let off the machine, or your child who won't forgive you, or you can't get your medicine, or your beloved doggy's cough won't stop, or the forest you love has been logged, or the school shut down, or they poisoned the water again, or they put a highway through again, or another species gone, or it's raining in, raining in Greenland, 
or, 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 or. You get my point. It is a kid's fantasy by which we grown-ups seem as seduced as plenty of kids to imagine any emotion discreet from any other. But it strikes me as a particularly dangerous fantasy by which I also mean it is sad, so goddamn sad, that because we often think of joy as meaning without pain or without sorrow, which to reiterate, our consumer culture has us believing as a state of being we could buy, not only is it sometimes considered unserious or frivolous to talk about joy, i.e. there's so much pain in the world, but this definition also suggests that someone might be able to live without or maybe a more accurate phrase is free of heartbreak or sorrow, which I'm pretty sure you only get to do if you have no relationships, love nothing, are a sociopath, and maybe if you're enlightened. I don't know about you, but I checked none of these boxes. But what happens if joy is not separate from pain? What if joy and pain are fundamentally tangled up with one another? Or even more to the point, what if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? What if joy, instead of refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what effloresces from us as we help each other carry our heartbreaks? Which is to say, what if joy needs sorrow? Or what Zadie Smith in her essay, Joy, calls the intolerable for its existence? If it sounds like I'm advocating for sorrow, nope. Besides, sorrow, unlike joy apparently, doesn't need an advocate. Given as, to quote the visionary blind man Pazzo and Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, were born, quote, astride a grave, i.e., we and everyone and everything we love will one day, maybe today, die. I think sorrow is going to be just fine. Like Gwendolyn Brooks says about death, one of sorrow's chauffeurs, it's, quote, just down the street, his most obliging neighbor can meet you at any moment, end quote. Whereas the Jackson 5 sing, not in the voice of sorrow, but kinda, I'll be there. But what I am advocating, and adamantly so, is that rather than quarantining ourselves or running from sorrow, Rather than warring with sorrow, we lay down our swords and invite sorrow in. I'm suggesting we make sorrow some tea from the lemon balm in the garden. We let sorrow wash up and take some of our clothes. We give sorrow our dad's slippers that we've hung on to for 15 years for just this occasion. And we drape our murdered buddy's scarf, still smelling of Nag Champa, over sorrow's shoulders to warm them up some. We wedge some wood in the fire, as we're refilling their tea, we notice sorrow is drinking from a mug given to us by someone we've hurt. We ask sorrow about themselves and we scooch closer to hear. We eventually decide to invite a small group of friends over for a potluck because we want sorrow to meet them. Sorrow says, maybe more than just your closest friends? So we add to the list a couple acquaintances from work, the supermarket. We put our mechanic on the list, our chiropractor, and the neighbors we wave at, but not much more than that. And when Sorrow asks, what about that guy of someone you really don't like? After thinking, how'd Sorrow know that? You say, I hate that dude. Sorrow says, 
better invite him too. Damn, okay, you say. Looking over your shoulder as you're growing the invite list, sorrow nudges you in the arm and says, maybe just invite anyone with some sorrow to bring along. Couldn't be too many people. Besides, looking around at your small place, sorrow says, this is a good sized house. So we open it up, bring a dish and bring your sorrows. We prepare a few staples with which sorrow helps. A keen eye sorrow has for the tenderest leaves of dandelion and the volunteer mustards frilling the edge of the compost pile. Easy too, your sorrow with kneading and shaping up the sourdough. Your sorrow even roots around in the antique cabinet you never look in anymore for how bad it hurts and pulls out your mother's handmade placemats, quilted and embroidered with everyone's initials. Let's use these, sorrow says, clapping them together to get the dust out. And when the guests start showing up, just as your sorrow is pulling the loaves of bread from the oven and you're dressing the salad, at first it's just a few people nodding and smiling shyly when you wave them in. This is a place, yep, come on. And then a few more ring the doorbell. And then they start coming in twos and threes and squads and families. So you just keep the door open front and back, come on in because they are coming in droves, walking up the hill toward the house on the north and coming through the woods from the south. And the house is already too full, way too full, you think, but everyone squishes in and it somehow never quite fills up, bringing their dish and their sorrows. Some of them obviously old pros at the potluck, looking for a place to put their dish. These ones even bring their own plate and utensils with an index card with the ingredients, if it has nuts or gluten or dairy. And some guests with just a box of cookies or a bag of chips or a two liter they got at Kroger on the way over. And some, of course, they forget their goodies, but at this potluck, no one forgets their sorrows, which they introduce to each other. You can just barely hear it over, the, over how loud it is. I'd like you to meet my sorrow, we holler to each other, dipping our flatbread into the hummus or eating the kimchi with our fingers because the forks are long gone. Good to meet you, we shout smiling and nodding at the sorrow, who also smiles and nods and half shrugs and raises their eyebrows. This is mine, we yell, pulling the spoon from the doll we're eating to point at our sorrow, who takes a bite of the lentils and laughs. Well done, sorrow. Everyone jostles that sorrow, and he, he leans up against who we came with. And around those oatmeal, raisin, chocolate chip cookies gathers a gaggle of guests and their sorrows giggling and pretending to fight over the last cookie before one of the sorrows breaks it into 10 pieces and they all take their bite from sorrow's hand, moaning like a choir. It goes on like this, growing louder and more raucous and ramshackle, this potluck of sorrows. A lamp gets knocked off the table. A jade plant topples from the mantle, its clay pot splintering into shards that a few people promptly set about cleaning up, then getting the plant repotted. The dog gets stepped on and the cat steering clear, looking in from the beech tree out front. It's not long before someone breaks out the cards in the kitchen and a few other people rummage the fridge and pantry, wanting to try to make those delicious oatmeal cookies. A few people in their sorrows run out to the garden to grab some cabbages and carrots and give an impromptu sauerkraut workshop. There are some kids playing wall ball in the kitchen, marking up the plaster. And when two of them stumble into each other and knock heads and then they start shoving and then throwing punches, an old woman and her sorrow jump between them and shout out, where the hell are your sorrows? The kids point with their chins over to the tarot table 
And the old woman marches over there, grabs their sorrows by the elbows and shoves them toward the kids. And they seem to work it out. There was a crew with their sorrows by the stove watching the chai and singing Jodeci's cover of Stevie Wonder's Lately in perfect four-part harmony, which the dog joins in on. I think I hear it right that a squad with their sorrows standing outside the bathroom is gonna make a scooter gang and a flock of folks with their sorrows a coven. A newfangled poultice posse is macerating plantain and comfrey from outback with the mortar and pestle. Some elders and youngers are sitting with their sorrows in a circle, crafting kites out of the, the obituary pages of the newspaper. And another group is sitting on the ground in front of the wood stove, which stays stocked and burning. And they're doing that lev levitation trick where everyone puts a finger or two under the person. You remember that? Me and my sorrow elbow each other and are like, yo, check this out. And no way, because dude isn't small. Like, dude's really not small. And neither is his sorrow, who is sitting cross-legged on dude's chest. And don't you know, they lift him and his sorrow like they are just about nothing. And dude's face, which looks kind of somber at first with his eyes closed, just slides into a big surprise smile and his eyes pop wide open. And after he gasps, he actually cackles up there. I mean, he cackles so hard he cries. Then they kind of drop him and catch him and they're all laughing and crying and the thud skips the record back to the, the beginning of Sly Stone's family affair and the dancing, which has been intermittent, just blasts off. All of us in our sorrows, sweaty, stomping and shaking, tearing it up, the pictures falling off the walls, the books from the shelves, some logs ablaze, even spilling from the stove, riotous this care, this carrying, this incitement, this joy. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. So we'll start with the first incitement then, since it was lovely to hear you read part of it. Yeah. You write in the first incitement that solidarity might incite further joy, and that we, despite the vastness of polarization, might all have more in common than we realize. Mm -hmm. And throughout the book, really, you write a lot about care care for ourselves, care for others, care for the land, care for the future, care for your reader. Mm. And I could go on and on. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the economy of care? And I'm borrowing that term from my teacher, Gabby Kalpakaresi. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that, the economy of care. You know, bless you, there's sort of like a, um, there's a, there's this thing, it's sort of this beautiful thing that I think we're, we're constantly maybe, um, maybe there are a million ways that we're sort of encouraged out of understanding this, but the fact is that care is a kind of contagion, you know, and to talk about it economically, it's sort of like there's an abundance and an undepletable sort of um, cash, um, C-A-C-H-E, but it's also like cash, um, <laughs> of care and and the thing, and this is an interesting thing to kind of come, you know, to bring it back to me, to this, um, the Book of Delights, you know, this thing that I've been noticing as I've been going around reading again lately, 
is a lot of people telling me, you know, I've been, you know, after reading your book, I've been writing my own delights, doing my own little delight projects. It's awesome. So one is just to say that, oh, well, that's cool. That seems like it's a little bit of a, a contagion. And, and I'm always trying to remember to point out that just like they're trying, they're sort of saying, thank you for giving me this project, this thing. And I try to remember to say, and all those delights were given to me. And they also say so often that the, when they're doing them, other people join in. Other people want to kind of like do the same thing. So there, this is very interesting thing about these aspects of our lives that are sort of like, that are, that are sort of, they, there's the kind of like possibility of exponentiality in them. And I feel like care is one of these things, like an economy of care is something in which if you, if we do, if we, I'm going to say the negative first as a way to sort of postulate the, the positive. If we don't operate as though there's a destitution or a deprivation of care, again, which I think we're largely encouraged to do, and I'm going to veer off again. I shouldn't, but I'm going to. <laughs> One of the things it feels to me that aspects, some aspects of authority, you know, and we can go off on that for a while. Authority in some way requires that we forget that we are in fact the primary administrators of each other's care. And so we rely on authority to care for us. It seems to me, you know, I've been thinking that, I've been noticing that more and more, the older I get. <laughs> and the more I'm sort of like, I, I'm feeling like believing in relying on you for my care, you know, I believe in that. Um, and I feel like there's actually that, that wisdom, that understanding, which is deep and longstanding, is, a, is actually a threat. It's a profound threat to authority. <laughs> you know, it's a profound threat to authority once we start to be like, oh, actually, you're not the administrator of care. You're the withholders of care. And, and we are the ones who administer care to one another. Anyway, I do feel like once we realize that we are the administrators of care, and one of the things that I'm trying to do in that book is to point it out, point it out, point it out, point it out, and also listen to other people tell me like, oh yeah, you gotta look at this, you gotta think about that. Then you do realize that when you're talking about an economy of care, it's precisely a kind of gift economy. It's an economy that, that when you give it away, you know, and I'm, I'm citing in my mind Robin Wall Kimmerer, I'm citing in my mind Lewis Hyde, when you give it away, the act of giving away grows it in you, you know? When you give care away, care grows in you, you know? And it also probably seeds the ground for more care to kind of come, come to you, you know? Absolutely. And I think care also builds resilience. Yeah. And in many ways, gratitude too. Mm -hmm. And I think a big chunk of the last part of the book really focuses on gratitude. Yeah. How do you feel that gratitude has informed your joy? I, those are the, like, it's like gratitude, joy, and love. They're like the, this triumvirate or something. Um, and I can't quite discern how they're, I mean, it would take a little while. I should probably do this at some point since I have a book called Catalog of Unbashed Gratitude and a book called Inside and Joy. Um, <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. But those, those things feel very overlapped. And gratitude, it feels to me like, um, well, like joy. Joy feels to me like maybe like a, a definition that I feel lately is, is a very apt one. Is the feeling that comes to us or the feeling that we enter or the, the feeling, the gathered feeling that we join when we practice entanglement. 
Entanglement, we're always entangled with one another. You can't get out of it. That's just what it is. But what happens when we practice the entanglement? We join the entanglement. We enter it. Um, that feels to me like joy. And in some way, I feel like gratitude is another kind of acknowledgement of the entanglement. Um, you know, gratitude, like a deep gratitude practice, the ones that sort of I, I feel like I'm writing about and wondering about are the gratitude practices that are, you know, that are sort of like in a, in a fundamental way that, that there are people who, who have made our lives possible. There are people who are making our lives possible. There are trees that are making our lives possible. There are um, all these things in our microbiome. I don't know what the hell they are, but I know they're there that are making our lives possible. You know, constant. Again, it's this sort of constant um, thing of care that gratitude is attempting to acknowledge. And it's not acknowledging, and it's part of the acknowledgement and the gravity of the acknowledgement to me is that we know what the absence of care is too, you know? So maybe that's how, that, maybe that's how I would think about it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm going to get a little bit deeper then. Yeah. So practicing joy in our daily ordinary lives can sometimes be really difficult with everything going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, the news is hard to watch these mm -hmm. days. But then you have this book that recenters us on the smallest, most beautiful things, the garden, mm -hmm. the orchard, the table, the basketball court, mm -hmm. the things that bring joy to our everyday lives. Yeah. How can we practice that same kind of joyful resistance in our ordinary lives? Mm. What? I'm not sure. I mean, I do feel like it's useful to me to recognize the places in my life that are not, that are not special, that are not like I'm going to the joy factory, but that are really like, I'm going to go play ball, you know, and I might not even be thinking about joy, <laughs> but I know that I'm going to drop into this set of practices that are all about caring for one another so that this game can proceed, you know, or when I'm going to go to class, you know, if I'm going to be teaching in a class, like, how am I going to be with my students in such a way that, you know, I'm, I might not be thinking about joy, but I might be sort of building a kind of set of practices that are, um, that are trying to make room for all of us to sort of, you know, be supported and be cared for and also to be supported in our confusion and mystery and wondering together. Um, so I wonder if that's actually a big part of it. Like, oh, there are all of these sites, actually, these sites where all of this sort of constituent material, whatever, for joy exists, but we often don't recognize it. You know, we often don't recognize how often we're in these sort of matrices of care. Um, and I think one of my goals is to sort of keep checking out, you know, looking at, looking at that, how that happens. And, and sometimes looking at that, how that happens as a set of practices, but also how it just flares up periodically. Like I, I love like sort of public-ish spaces. Like I love laundromats, you know, I love, you know, post offices because there are always, you know, everywhere is these places like this, but like there's always the opportunity and in my experience, often it happens, is someone's gonna like take care of you. 
someone's gonna like hook you up in some way. You know, they're gonna like, you know, if you need like a laundry sheet or something, <laughs> or, or if someone like, you know, someone took your clothes, you know, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, I remember who they accidentally, they must've taken your clothes. Those, your clothes are not really not gonna fit them. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff is, it happens all the time. You know, we're always in the midst of that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, in a way it's kind of like an attention practice. But it also feels like a, um, it feels like an attention practice, but it feels like this study. Like you gotta, we gotta learn how to study where the care is actually sort of fomenting, you know? Yeah. Speaking of practice, I'm kind of uh, curious about what habits or rituals you have when you come to practice writing, when you come uh, to sit down and write. Yeah. Um, let me just say something first about how great the students are here. Um, yeah. Um, I was having a conversation, uh, you know, they, they have this like a radio station here. You probably, some of you know this. Um, <laughs> there's a town nearby called Traverse City. Uh, <laughs> who knew? And um, this kid, I forget, I forget who asked the question, but someone, but this person said, they called, they said, you know, cause since something, 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 you talk about joy as a method. And I said, I never said that. That's awesome. <laughs> that is so good. You know, like I talk about practice, you know, often about practice. That's actually what I'm thinking about. I think of it as a practice, but there's something a little bit different between a practice and a method. I'm not exactly sure, you know, and I'll figure it out. But the person who gave that to me, I just want to say thank you for giving that to us <laughs> because it was so good. That's just like brilliant. Um, so anyway, kudos. Well done, everyone. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I asked about uh, what habits or rituals you have uh, when you come to your practice of writing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't have like um, too many rituals I, to writing stuff. You know, I'm not too ritualistic. I don't have to be any specific place. I don't have to, but there is, I am like a fetishy about notebooks and pens. I really am. Really? Oh, I really am. So a specific kind of pen. Can I read some? Oh yeah. Okay. Please. I have this, so I have this new, this new book um, <laughs> of delights coming out. In, in September, I'm laughing because some of you heard me say it's called, maybe unfortunately, the book of more delights. <laughs> Descriptive, you know, whatever. Um, but this is called, um, this is called The Perfect Notebook. Um, yeah, so you know, whatever, we'll get this going. The Perfect Notebook. Or maybe not perfect, but perfect enough. Though I could write an entire manifesto on the perfect notebook, for which I have been searching my whole life, it seems like. Sometimes in a kind of fugue state in the notebook store, they sell other stuff, but I don't care. <laughs> well, that's not true, pens too. In Manhattan on 8th Street between 5th and 6th, or in Meg's beautiful store in Frenchtown, New Jersey. 
caressing the leaves of every bound thing while looking into space, trying to discern through the ears on my fingertips if this one or this one or this one or this one is going to draw from my pen what brilliance is hiding deep somewhere in there, whispering or percolating or murmuring. Look, to deny the mysticality of the process is a crock. I mean, seriously, I actually think sometimes it's the notebook or more precisely, the soiree between the notebook and the pen, the tooth of the paper and the viscosity of the ink, let alone the inherent spiritual endowments of each, that who makes the poem, the essay, the dream come forth on the page on account of the page. You see what I'm saying? It's a lot of pressure to put on a notebook. I'm thinking today about the notebook I'm writing these delights in, whose paper is a touch too slick, lacking tooth, and whose dimensions a bit too large, lacking pocketability, and rules a bit too square, it's graph paper, because it's actually a grade book, or better yet, a, all caps, grade book, <laughs> as it says in red ink, stolen from my place of employ, which I think I will continue to do for this whole year. Liberate is the better word, swords into plowshares as it is, which too a notebook might whisper to us or draw from us. So the least we can do is listen, even if imperfectly so. Thank you, Ross. That was great. <laughs> and a great way to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my, I think that's my ritual. Like I, I am, I am, you know, deep with the texture of notebooks <laughs> yeah there's a certain kind of visceral feeling that oh you need God. with that paper and pen yeah i feel that because i have my own I like you, these certain kinds of pens what are they you brand you can have this one oh, matches neat. your shirt yeah oh neat and pretty see if you like that one too because yeah yeah I feel yeah that it looks good <laughs> oh that's gonna be good i can tell <laughs> thank you you're welcome <laughs> So I got to ask, because I, I do feel that this question has a lot to do with care, hmm. as much as it does to do with practice. Hmm. Um, how do you feel about forgiveness and its way it affects joy or maybe creates a barrier sometimes to hmm. limiting our joy? Forgiveness. Say a little more, would you? I love that question. Yeah, I mean... Forgiving ourselves, mm. forgiving others, forgiving our spouse, yeah, forgiving yeah. the state of the world. I think sometimes we kind of get lost and it's really hard to forgive. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so great. I love that question. It's such a difficult question. Um, and I like to say at first things that I don't have an answer at all. Um, second, I feel, you know, sometimes I think, oh, yeah, right. So, Forgiveness is, sometimes I wonder about, you know, there's a kind of forgiveness that feels kind of inherent to maybe a person or a relationship. And, you know, forgiveness can be a kind of self, you know, like it's something you do for yourself primarily. And it may be, maybe, I don't know, maybe for if the other person, maybe. Um, but I've lately been more interested I don't know, more interested. I've lately been interested in like um, this thing, more like a kind of notion of debt, 
you know, and and by by debt, you can tell this isn't at all worked out in my head, but by debt, something like um, how we are in relationship with one another when we know each other has hurt each other. And not that we are, not that we necessarily have forgiven it or need to like wipe it away or anything, um, but that we are understanding each other as creatures in process, something like that, you know? Um, there's some, you know, I've, I'm, I've been curious about the word mercy lately. Mercy and grace are interesting words to me. Um, mercy, which shares its kind of root, merci, gratitude, you know, which again reply, uh, implies a kind of, to me, tetheredness to, you know, connectedness. Um, but I do feel like, you know, that question of um, how do we sort of be together? How do, be, how do we be together um, knowing that we've caused harm, you know, that that's a sort of like being in relationship, like one of the, the qualities of being in a relationship is that probably you're going to cause harm. Being a creature, um, you don't really get out of it. But how do we sort of acknowledge that and maybe, maybe not hide from that, you know, not maybe not hide from that, but like, how do we not hide from that? How do we acknowledge that in ourselves? I don't know. I mean, so maybe like I'm, I'm, I'm going around the forgiveness question, which I think is a great question. Um, and maybe I'm going around it because I, I just don't know how to answer it. But I do feel like there is this other thing about repair, about um, care, actually, that involves our own, uh, our own coming to terms with ourselves um, as, you know, as, as creatures changing, you know, that we were this and we're going to be something else and on and on and on, and that we're unfinished you know, and that each of us is unfinished and that, and unfixed, you know, that we are all, we're perpetually unfixed. There seems to me that feels like a kind of grace, you know, if we don't fix each other, like, you know, um, what we did something to each other, whatever. And that's, that's who we are now. I don't want, I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't want even if I want to do it, like some kind of childish, scared part of myself wants to do it, I don't want to want to do that. I want to want to always believe that we're, we're unfixed and we're in the process, we're in process. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm sorry for the hard question. No, thank you for the hard <laughs> question. That's what I want. But forgiveness, I think, is, is one way to get to joy. And I yeah. think forgiveness is a big part of sorrow, too. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's a, a big chunk of this that talks about sorrow, and it's actually a really brave section of the book. It's actually really courageous to admit and also be willing to sit with sorrow. Mm. And I think we struggle with that sometimes. We're always, you know, got the next thing on our phone, the next social media post, the next picture, whatever. There's a lot of distractions. Yeah. But how do you find sustainability in sitting with sorrow? 
that's, that feels like a kind of practice, you know, that feels like a practice. Um, it feels, you know, it feels sort of like, talk about sustainability, it feels sort of like um, if we're incapable of doing that, then we're going to destroy everything. You know, there's like no hope. <laughs> doomed. We're doomed. Yeah, we're doomed, you know, because you kind of have to be like, wait, what did we do to the water? Yeah. You know, if you don't like grieve it, then you're just going to like hide it and do it again. That's my experience. When I don't grieve the thing that I've <laughs> fucked up on, I hide it, I pretend it didn't happen, and then I do it again, you know? And then I just pile that up. Oh, no. And then it's not good. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's sort of called being a chicken shit, you know, like a, like a, like a regular, you know, like a person, you know, For like sure. learning, like learning. I mean, yeah. with forgiveness. <laughs> with forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like learning that, oh, right. We can like really do profound wreckage if we don't grieve, you know, all kinds of things. And I don't even mean like grieve, like our sort of, you know, just to sort of, you know, to grieve you know, that our beloveds are dying or to grieve that, you know, all, there's, there's enough to grieve. But it seems to me without the grieving, without, you know, one of the things that we refuse, grieve, refuse to grieve, it seems to me, is to refuse being connected. To refuse grief is to refuse connection. And grief is one of the many ways that we're, we are really, it's the evidence of our being moved. When we're moved, it means we're impermeable. I mean, we're, it means that we're permeable. It means that we're affectable. It means that we are not discreet. It means that you are actually me in ways, you know? If something happens to you and I grieve, there's something that, oh, that boundary that we've imagined so often between us, I guess it's not as, as true as I thought it was, you know? The veil lifts. Yeah, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying, you know? I think for different of us, for different reasons, but I think to sort of really be steady in practicing and witnessing and attending to and honoring our connectedness means you're going to be grieving, you know? It also probably means you might be dancing, you know? Like those things feel to me very much, you know, we get moved by each other. It's not only we're moved to cry, we're also moved to move, you know? I love that you brought up dancing. Yeah. I also yes. love dancing. <laughs> um, and I'm really kind of curious about movement in mm. your practice. And how did you, how did you incorporate the visceral mm. practice into your writing practice? Which I don't, for many of us, it's that, you know, you sit at the desk and you don't really move. Tick, yeah. tick, 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 tick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you engage in that practice of movement? Well, I just kind of have some practice stuff. You know, I play basketball, I swing kettlebells, I jump rope, I, you know, do this and that. Um, just as a matter of course. And I feel like, um, you know, the older I get, I feel like the more, um, the more I sort of just, just take care of my body, whatever, you know, um, but also get acquainted with it and all these things, everything's so interesting. Like, you know, you get a little older and you're like, oh yeah, I've spent a lot of time like punishing my body. That's what I used to call working out. You know, I played football in college and like I have a certain kind of relationship, I think to, to athletics. Like I've learned some things. I've learned some things, you know, I'm trying to unlearn some things. <laughs> and I feel like exercise um, or just like, you know, it's just another thing of like, noticing, noticing one's body, noticing, you know, one's breath, um, noticing the changes in one's body. 
um, all of which feels to me completely pertinent and useful as you're as you're doing your writing stuff too. You know, it also feels like to some extent like practice is practice. Like you have a if you have a practice like skipping rope a little bit every day, that transfers over to like practicing writing an essay for half an hour every day. You know, as far as I'm concerned. The dedication, yeah, yeah the commitment, yeah, it definitely yeah. follows through. Yeah. So in this chapter about dancing, yeah. you talk about being free. Yeah. And I, I know this feeling because I love to dance and I, I love the feeling of just being able to improv with no expectations, especially when it's with your buddy. Yeah. And you get to share that kind of shared visceral moment together. Yeah. yeah. That brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about dancing and that idea of really being free in dance? I really am going to tell you about it. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is the shortest essay in the book. It's really short. Promise. And... Uh, It starts off with my buddy, Patrick Rosal, who's a, a beautiful poet. Um, and he, he and I, <laughs> we dance together some. You might find it on YouTube if you looked hard enough. <laughs> but this is called Went Free, Dancing, the 12th Incitement. And this is after and for Patrick Rosal. For the past four or five years, I've kept a post-it note stuck to a bookshelf next to my bed. It is a quotation, something my friend Patrick said in conversation one day when we were talking about dancing. He was describing a recent night out in a crowd. Some time had elapsed, some warming up, some groove prepared. I think a particular song came on and then boom, something happened, which he described like this. We went free. The actual second he said it, I smiled and shook my head no, and then I shook my head yes, like this motherfucker. And I scribbled the phrase on my hand and then in my notebook, which I shortly thereafter transcribed to the post-it note that I've had stuck here all these years. And though I wasn't there, I have been there enough times to know exactly what he means when he says, we went free, which can happen any number of ways, it seems to me. For instance, right now, I can more or less guarantee you that if there were 15 or 20 people of my generation and perhaps a few other subject position -y things, if new additions, if it isn't love, or troops spread my wings, or a Tribe Called Quest scenario, or any of another 500 or so songs, a thousand of them incidentally by Prince, came over some cosmic speakers, we would, regardless of the setting, I'm telling you, whether it was in a yoga class or at a snoozy literary conference or at a stoplight or a funeral, boom, jump up and start dancing. Good chance someone, this is one of Pat's callings, or several someones, when the song announced itself, as those songs do, would yell some diphthongy vowel to gather us up like, oh! And as those cinched together by an invisible force, we would, all together now, go free. Not only, but often, its music pulls us out of our chairs like that, makes us push back from the table and say, damn, like that or makes us circle up like that, or make a line like that, or become a pit like that. I have often gone free in a fishbone mosh pit. Perhaps because music's primary characteristic, like our voices, possibly like our bodies, is that it disappears. 
which is not music's or our body's only characteristic, but a significant one, maybe the significant one, maybe the first one, though birth is the first thing that happens. It's back to waiting for Godot again, born astride a grave, here one second, gone the next. That's rhythm, by the way. The breaks in the silence, the breaks in the rest, the break from the grave. And no wonder it draws us up together to shake our asses or whatever on us shakes, remade kin by the break, remade kin by what blooms us from the grave. It ain't nothing that dancing is sometimes called getting down. It ain't nothing that some of our best dancers, I mean our downest dancers, are also our oldest. And like Lorca reminds us, when they dance with the ants nipping at their heels, the roses throw their petals into luminous carpets to our graves. In the midst of all this, you might be wondering, free from what? And rightfully so. For freedom, as it is conceived almost always, far as I know, involves a disentangling or unburdening, free to be me, etc. National myths, Independence Days, for instance, often involve freeing oneself from the oppressive this or that, never mind that the emancipated nation often becomes the oppressive this or that. Personal stories of freedom are likewise often about getting out from something's control. It's my prerogative. I can do what I want to do, etc. Handing back their keys or climbing out of a window or getting tenure or quitting or growing your own garden, whatever the case may be. Spiritual freedom sometimes implies liberation from the brambles of the material realm or from death or from the confines and burdens of the decaying body, though here it gets hazy. Given as the spirit can snatch you up to your feet, can take you over precisely the way it would happen, I'm telling you, if the first few notes of Lauren Hill's cover of Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly with his song came over the cosmic speakers or Jill Scott's Golden or the first couple bars of Every Little Step or either of the joy and pains. We would be snatched up to our feet. Yes, passive voice, thank you very much. It would be like that time I was in the waning hours of a dance party in a living room of a straw bale house with a bunch of black farmers at Soul Fire Farm and the first few notes of Kendrick Lamar's All Right came on and my God, we went free. People threw their drinks down and sprinted close enough to each other that each other got murky we became amoebic, hivish, murmurative, our breath and sweat commingled, and that woman from Germantown froze at that part of the song where Kendrick freezes, and I thought, again, goddamn, we're beautiful. Ten minutes later, breathing hard, we were out under a full moon. Whitney Houston was covering Dolly, I Will Always Love You, and we made like trees reaching into the air by reaching through the ground toward each other, by which I mean, at least for some hours, we got free. All of which is to say, as I think I understand it, though for sure the free going Pat was talking about could be cracking the shackles of anything that keeps us from dancing hard together. We went implies that the getting there, the escape or flight is always together. There is no freedom despite all that pervasive, ubiquitous, bogus, me against the world, self-made bootstrap baloney, absent we. Not some pipsqueak we either. The we born astride a grave, which is um, everyone with whom we belong when we dance like this, sweaty and funky and groany. And if your knee hurts or your back or your hip hurts, if the wheel of your chair squeaks or you can't see or your heart is broken in two, me too, me too, 
Let's let it be ours again. Oh! It means let's get up now. It means this is how we get down. <laughs> Thank you okay. for that one. Okay. I think we got one more question before we start Q&A. Yeah. So this question is maybe a little selfish, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been really lucky to have really amazing mentors and teachers, you being one of them. Mm, thank you. Matthew Olsman told me once that I should keep a journal. Mm. I should keep writing down my dreams. Jamal May told me I should write down the scents and all of the smells that I encounter throughout a day. Wow. What would you advise to young aspiring poets and writers, many of whom are in the audience, what should we be collecting and keeping track of? Mm. I love both of those, the dream and the sense. Um, I, am, I am really convinced, I feel like there's some kind of like spiritual slash ethical, but also like, you know, writerly um, value to noticing articulating and sharing what you love. You know, I think that that feels like um, something I, I feel like I can stand by that, you know, like go do it. <laughs> there you have it. There's yeah. your charge, everyone. Yeah. Keep your journal, your notebook, your pen and write those things down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful way of, I think, noticing more joy in your life and filling it with more gratitude. Totally. You know, I mean, it's just like a simple thing. Like it, it's easy to go through a day without once saying, oh, I love that thing. It's easy to do that. And, and then it's also not that hard to be like, you know, sometimes it's hard, which is why it's nice when we can help each other. Um, but it's not, it can sometimes not be that hard also to be like, yo, I love that. I love that. I love those flowers. I love that those flowers maybe match a little bit with your dress. I love that we're having this conversation after like eight years of having not seeing each other. I love that there's an audience here. I love that people seem to be listening. I love, you know, the sound of leaves, the oak leaves blowing through. I love, you know, the, the white caps. I love that it's not snowing yet. <laughs> you know? Oh God, no more snow, please. <laughs> but I think we got to start the Q&A here. Yeah. mics please all right anyone who has a question please come to this mic or the mic over there thank you thank you and keep in mind we are live streaming this event to an audience that is not here so ask your questions please into the microphone so they can hear them thank you hi um i'm mia i'm a student at interlochen um your work to me seems to be so grounded in attention. Um, and my question is, we live in an attention economy where um, to have an audience with whom to share our art, to get you know, funding and recognition, it can feel as though we have to harness every attention-grabbing tool at our disposal, you know, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, email lists, monthly newsletters, um, to occupy some small space in the consciousness of our audience. And so I guess my question is, how have you pursued your success without feeling as though you're playing into the system that is in many ways antithetical to everything art stands for, you know, stillness and connection? Um, or maybe you have, I don't know, that's my question. 
the fact that you're asking that question, I feel so hopeful. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's funny because I feel like I, I, in a certain kind of way, I feel like I came just a little bit late enough to be a little bit like not quite as subject to that or something. Um, my partner is also quick to tell me when I'm like not doing some stuff that someone is doing it for me. Um, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, I also want to say that it's hard to believe, but I'm going to wander around this answer a little bit. <laughs> One thing that I, you know, I'm 48. And so my first book came out in 2006. And I probably started like giving readings in, um, you know, like 2003 a lot, anytime I could, maybe, maybe more like 2000. Anytime someone would ask me to give a reading, you know, it'd be like behind the garage, you know, <laughs> to the grill. I would do it. You know, and um, and there was like a group of us, like, you know, I feel like it's, Karina might have been the same way. Like, there's like a, a, it feels like a generational thing almost, like where you just hustled and you practiced and you gave as many readings as you possibly could and whoever asked and you like just did it. And in a way it was sort of like, I wonder sometimes, I'm like, oh, that was a little bit the equivalent of some of the, the, social media stuff, you know? There was this other thing, which was just like, you know, doing the work in my, you know, what I think of as part of my work. Um, so that's, that's a bracket of like sort of my experience. I just feel, I wonder like the, when I think of my students, my grad students or, or my younger students too. And when I think of like the amount of energy that I notice sometimes them spending on crafting a kind of exterior, sellable, commodifiable self product, I, I feel convinced it's not good for art, like you noticed, you know? I feel convinced that kind of, um, here's maybe where it is, that there's like, there's some material realities, like we gotta pay bills. And then there's this other sort of real sorrow, it feels like to me, which is when artists are really appealing to people to like them. It sounds a little bit, you know, counterintuitive in a way because you want your art to be appreciated. But it does, and you know, and like could be, you know, when I say like, maybe I mean like, I do mean liked, but I also mean like um, clicked on and stuff, popular. I feel like there's something that is, is flattening, um, soul destroying. <laughs> I, like I feel it's really bad. And I feel, and I feel it like it's a real destitution in myself when I'm trying to do that myself. I feel like the worst art I could make is art that is appealing to be approved of. And I feel like, thank you. And I feel like there's a really strong impulse. Um, I think the social media, of course, it sort of works on those factors, right? It works on kind of like approval. And you're right, like the sort of deep mysteries by which art comes to pass 
by which meaningful relationships come to pass, by which a meaningful life comes to pass. It seems to me, maybe not always, but it's often way slower. It's on a completely different scale, a scale outside of like the kind of commodifiable, everything commodifiable world. It's like a mysterious and I don't know, place. It's a place that doesn't actually make sense on, I don't know anything about TikTok, but I know it's a thing. And I, I think I know enough to say, I think it probably doesn't make sense on TikTok, you know? Um, which isn't to say not to use it. Like, I don't know, and I don't, I'm not gonna say that. Um, but I am gonna say your question and your wariness and your awareness is, I, I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Jillian, and I was wondering a bit more about your work with Bonnie Vare and your sort of soundscape poems um, that you have created, or uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what it was like to sort of create that. Yeah, that, so there's a, um, um, there's this amazing collaboration um, and one of the songs is with Bon Iver, and um, I'm gonna tell you how it happened. Someone who works at this company called Jag Jaguar, which is under the Secretly Canadian label, he works around, just around the corner from where my little studio is. And I'm pretty sure this is how it went. He knocked on the door and he was like, yo, you wanna, we're having like, it's 25th anniversary of Jag Jaguar. You wanna do a little thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do a thing. And then, Along the way, he said, okay, so maybe we'll like record some of your poems and then we'll put some music to them. And then we met one more time. He said, I think Boney Bear said he'll, he'll put you in something. He has like a 10 minute, no, he has like a 15 minute song that might work for Catalog. And I was like, oh, great, awesome. I went and I recorded the poems. I had no idea. I just was like, yeah, whatever, let's, let's do it. I just went and recorded the things and two, you know, immediately, I just kind of one taped them. And then I heard this record that they were putting together. <laughs> and it's fucking beautiful. And I had no idea. So I kind of had no idea. That's what I had. That's <laughs> the, uh, I had nothing to do with it. I just read these poems into a microphone just like this. And then they did all this magic stuff. And like they made this thing. And like the video is beautiful. And the artwork is beautiful. And all these, all these different uh, musicians. God damn, it's so it's so. Great, and I, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad you heard it. I'm glad you heard it, yeah. Thank you. It was really good. Awesome, thank you. Thank, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Hi, um, I have been lucky enough to teach some of your essays and writing workshops for young people, um, and I've taught uh, the Sanctity of Trains, which is the one that actually got quoted earlier about all of these instances of care. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of the kids get it and they, yeah. they sort of nod and recognize. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of them are really eager to come up with counterexamples oh, of yeah. all of the places where you don't find care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've struggled in those moments with like how to um, talk to people, especially young people who feel kind of safe in their cynicism about how to sort of like do you have thoughts on how to like gently sort of try to unfold that desire um, 
to pay attention to all of the places where they're not seeing care? Well, I think if there's so much encouragement to not see it. Like, I think if you turn on the news, you know, my, my, my buddy, he, he like moved from, he used to look at the New York news and then he moved so that he was seeing the Philly news and he was like, yo, is Philly always on fire? <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Matter of fact, whenever there's a fire, there's also someone like helping someone out of the fire, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I think there's obviously, there's no counter to the fact that like horrible things happen. I don't think that's, you know, and that we're, we can be awful. I don't think that's at all, um, doesn't need to be contested actually. Um, more is the thing of like, well, you could, we could just witness, spend time witnessing how, you know, you could do kind of an experiment, not always, but like if you like fell down in the middle of the street, mostly someone would stop and be like, yo, you need something? Can I help you? <laughs> not every single time, but mostly, you know? And of course, you know, there are like, like well-publicized versions of the opposite, you know? Partly they're well-publicized because, I mean, I think there's a kind of strategy to make us afraid of one another. I firmly believe that, you know? I think there's a lot of reasons to do that. Um, but also, it happens so much that we look out for one another. Every single one of us knows someone, if we aren't someone, who has like taken someone in, who needed, needed to be taken in. We've provided meals to people. You know, we've done, you know, we've like picked someone up who fell in the, you know, we like just, you know, and we've also been the beneficiary of that. We've also been, when we fell on the street, someone, you know, you just kind of go through it and it just is nonstop. So I feel, but often those instances of care are, seem very small, you know, but like a ride can save someone's life, you know? And they can seem like, yeah, I just gave someone a ride. But it's like, it's, and maybe just the gesture of like someone reaching out in the midst of a moment when someone needs it, it's like a life-saving gesture. You know, they're all, it feels to me like some, sometimes it can feel like, oh, these are all gestures of like, I also, I absolutely think they're gestures of making a world. Noticing the care is kind of noticing the world that we exist in and that we want to exist in. But those are also like, like life-changing, you know, life-making events. I don't know if I answered your question at all, but, but I <laughs> do feel, did I, did I even a little bit? I just said, I've got some ideas. Okay, okay. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, good luck. Hey there, I'm Dominic. Um, you mentioned grief in how it connects people. And it reminded me of an essay I wrote recently about toxic masculinity. What are your thoughts on that sort of barrier between people on how to properly grieve? Well, to me, it seems like one of the, one of the sorrows of a certain kind of manness, you know, um, you know, I can speak to the way that I was kind of brought up, um, is precisely this thing about not, not um, being moved. You know, there's only like a very limited way that a certain kind of dude is allowed to be moved, you know? Um, and maybe, you know, one of the terms for that could be, I don't know, whatever, toxic masculinity or something. Um, but that to me, because grief is an experience of being moved. It is an experience of being like, like we were saying, like permeable. 
like the, the sort of fantasy of being a self-contained unit, a needless unit, which to me is like the gravest destitution that there is to imagine that you're that. Um, but that a little bit is like, you know, maybe the American macho dream, you know? I don't know about all the other macho dreams, but, you know, like to be without needs, to be self-sufficient, to be independent, to be all of these things, which you can never be. You're always dependent. You're always in need of care. You're always beholden to, you know, even if you got all the money, you got a spaceship, you know, <laughs> you got a spaceship, you got like a million people working for you that you won't let be in unions. You got everything, you know. Still, if you, you need everything, <laughs> maybe you, you more than anything need everything, you know, it's like, we don't get out of it. And so, you know, basically I feel like that's one of the things that sort of, that I feel like I've been wondering about as, as I think about the ways that, you know, I was kind of raised, like I said, as a, as a boy, as a man, um, how, how do I acknowledge the ways, how do I acknowledge my need, actually? How do I sort of submit to my need? Um, which again, like part of that practice, it seems to me is also to be witness to the ways that my need is fulfilled, which is to say also the ways that I'm cared for. You know, that's what I would maybe say to that. Thanks for your question. Hi, I'm Tati. I'm a theater student. Um, and something that we've been, we talk a lot in theater companies, the idea of, of consumers theater and um, the idea that a lot of stories that might be told about um, oppressed groups or different people um, are, are really, um, or, or just art in general is targeted at audiences that might not actually uh, do anything about it or that art is just kind of created in a selfish nature. Mm. Do you believe that there is unselfish forms of art that could be reached to wider audiences? And if so, do you think that, oh, uh, do you have an idea on how we might actually be able to share that kind of art? So, yeah, great question. I kind of feel like art making this beautiful stuff isn't selfish, hmm. period. Um, I'm always a little bit like, um, um, all those questions, I'm always like, so for the, I hear exactly what you're saying and I totally hear what you're saying. And the first thing that I wanna say is that the, the first, you know, like the one of the questions that, you know, maybe that, one of the things that I would sort of like add to that question is like, well, first off, if you're making art, if you're practicing making your art, blah, 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 that to me itself, like even if it feels like ultimately it's for us, like no one else is going to care about this. Making and practicing, um, practicing making beautiful things is of value to the world. You know, it doesn't have to like go beyond, you know, even like the bedroom where everyone's working it out, like practicing it. It doesn't have to go beyond. And we could talk about that for a long time, you know, because, you know, it's, it's beautiful, it's a study, it's a lot. It's also like there are all these other things that we could be doing, you know. So when we're making beautiful things, we're not doing those other things. 
Um, but as far as, can you say again, like the, the kind of question about the audience and stuff? Say it one more time. Um, I guess it's like the idea that uh, if you're creating art that is about oppressed groups, yeah. um, for audiences, or you're creating stories about groups that aren't necessarily reflected within audiences. Yeah. If it's just the thought of them, is that art selfish, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to refuse the selfish thing. Mm -hmm. I want to refuse the selfish thing. I can kind of see like the, the thing of like, there's an objective or, a, or a, maybe like a desire for a certain kind of audience or a desire for a, a particular kind of movement in an audience. Um, or a particular kind of connection or something with an audience. Um, but I feel like, but I feel like it's, it might be, it's kind of nice to just put the selfishness thing off the table. And then to ask this second question of like, how do we get to, how do we get to share our work with audiences that, um, or maybe even how do we relate to our audiences? Right. You know, it might be like, you know, because I feel like there's something interesting that we learn about our work by sharing it with all kinds of audiences, you know. And the fact is that all audiences are all kinds of audiences, too, you know. Um, so I think that feels sort of also like for, for people, you know, for you all are like serious artists. You all are you know, going to do your work in a lot of places, probably. It seems like or there's a chance of that. It feels like important and moving and instructive and like a probably like a neat practice to be like, oh yeah, so when I do it here, this is, you know, like this is an experience that I've had. Or when I do it here, this is a, an, an experience that I've had. I mean, I know very, like I sort of have the experience <laughs> I know what you're talking about, you know? And it's sort of like, it's like, it's, a, it's kind of, you know, learning how to, to perform, just, you know, speaking of myself, um, you know, you hear different things, you hear your audience hearing you in ways, you know, and it's just neat to be like doing these things with different people in the audience to sort of hear how what you're wondering about um, is being heard in these different places. It's just fascinating. Um, so I, you know, I, th I, think, I think the bottom line is that I'm not giving you like a particularly useful answer, <laughs> <laughs> but I do, but I do feel like, um, making the work is the first thing. Then the second thing is like, okay, so now you're, you're asking the question about audience. Where do I want to perform? Where do I want to share? And that's a different question, you know? And that's a, that's a great question. And it's a completely, it's a question that I suspect will kind of change um, over time. Thank you. You're welcome. We have time for three more questions. So the three students standing at the mics and then um, that'll be it. I'm a teacher. I know it's hard to believe that I am. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here, Ross. Welcome. Um, I'm Sage Mitchell. I teach contemporary American literature this semester, so I thought, why not ask a question? Um, one of the ways that I teach my class is by looking at who we might assume, we don't always know, um, someone's literary ancestors are. Mm. So if we look at a text, who, who might inspire their work, I guess mm. you could say. And I would love to hear from you who you kind of look to as literary ancestors. Great. Um, it was funny in that dancing essay, I was just like sort of, one of the fun things about, to me, about writing and like doing that kind of genealogy um, is, is that I'm always 
there's, there's like the stuff that I'm sort of overtly referencing or citing in a way. And then there's all this stuff that I'm citing again and again and again, but it's like intimate enough that I don't have to say it. And so like in that, in that um, dancing essay, you know, my, my buddy Patrick's all over it, but my friend Adeseli, it's like I'm riffing on a poem um, of hers. I feel like my, and there's some of my, like my, a lot of my immediate family, Patrick Rosal, Adeseli Skimai, um, John Murillo, France, Francine Harris, who used to teach here, like a lot of people who are the immediates. And then there are like elders, like Gerald Stern, who just died um, recently, a poet who, without whom I wouldn't know how to write poems or essays, frankly. Um, the poet Amiri Baraka, um, Toni Morrison, um, Jamaica Kincaid, um, Herman Melville, Virgil of the Georgics. Um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, like, and I could go on and on and on. Sylvia Plath, hugely important to me. Um, um, Sonny Sanchez, June Jordan, uh, Maggie Nelson, again, more like a contemporary. Sarah Manguso, like a contemporary. John Edgar Wideman is a writer without whom I don't know if I'd know how to write a sentence. You know, I just have no idea if I'd be able to write a sentence. Richard Pryor, the comedian Richard Pryor, <laughs> feels to me like as important a kind of writing instructor, particularly the last 15 minutes of Live on the Sunset Strip. It feels to me like some of the best performance I've ever seen, but also it has taught me more about, and I think Richard Pryor in general has taught me more about the turn or the volta for you sonnet lovers. I know there's a lot of you out there. Um, <laughs> turn has taught me more about the volta than, you know, than like Robert Frost, you know? Um, so there's a lot. And then there's a lot of music, like kind of when I was coming up, the music that I was listening to is like so deep, so deep in me, like, you know, Tracy Chapman is like so deep in me, you know, and um, Public Enemy and De La Soul and, and U2 and, you know, Al Jarreau and like on and Simon and Garfunkel, on and on and on and on. Deep, deep. Um, so, you, you know, you didn't expect to get all that. <laughs> you, 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 you just gave us a syllabus. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's like four syllabi. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm MK. Earlier in your explanation, you kind of alluded to madness and how um, you kind of grew up, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just quoting off memory, but you grew up in a vicinity that didn't allow men to feel as much. Mm. And um, according to my inference, you're eradicating that notion. And I wanted to ask, does that ever show up in your work intently? Like, do you ever try to encourage men to feel, to harness pain, to, to know, to feel safe in their emotions and, you know, to be liberated of that kind of weight of not feeling? I mean, I think, thank you for the question. I think I do, um, um, just by virtue of like sort of thinking about it in the essays myself, you know, like, and I feel like it's been like moving to me to hear that, like I didn't necessarily think I was writing about like masculinity, you know, but, but people would tell me, oh yeah, you write about masculinity. Um, and that was interesting to me. And I think probably what 
I think if I understand it right, the way that people were talking about it was that I, I'm, I'm writing about or sort of wondering about these alternative modes of, of masculinity. Um, and then there are times where it's sort of very explicit where I'm wondering, you know, I'm rarely like someone else. I'm rarely like, you know, if you could do something, I'm like, I'm wondering about myself and I'm wondering about the sort of, um, the sorrow or the pain in my own life that has been wrought by being afraid to feel, being afraid to encounter, say, being sad, you know, just being sad. Um, which I feel like, or being afraid to be moved in particular ways, which again, you're right. Like, um, I feel like there were plenty of ways that I was taught that, you know, and, you know, and at all, like not at all to impugn anyone, to be like, you know, everyone's learning. Everyone's trying to learn what they can do. Um, but it's absolutely the case that I, that I, I grew up in a particular kind of way in a particular kind of culture, moments of culture, whatever. And, and I'm, I've been interested for a long time how to sort of um, undo or maybe redo some of that stuff. And a major thing of that is like how to just be able to feel, you know? It's a funny thing to be someone who makes poems, essays, and other stuff that I wanna make. And to also be someone who in a certain kind of way um, has been terrified of being moved, you know? It, particularly because the, the objective, I think, of like what a lot of what we do is like to move each other and to be moved, you know? So, yeah. And I, you know, if, if, if other people read it and, and feel also like they want to think hard about like what it means to be, a, you know, a man or whatever, I'm grateful for that. Thank you for that question. Hello, Hello. I'm, I'm RJ. I, uh, I was just thinking as I heard you talk about um, how you go out and play basketball, but you're also a writer and you still do all of these things. I myself am an athlete and it's very intertwined in my life and my day to day. And as I improve at athletics, I'm finding that the things that I enjoyed most about it the fun, the kinship that I get with friends and whatnot almost gets lost in this want to perform and this want to meet a certain standard that's been put in front of me as I improve when people are looking at me. Hmm. And I almost feel that fear as an aspiring writer as well. As I improve at writing, am I going to reach a point to where this thing that I enjoy so much is going to have that kind of pressure to almost like what you were saying before, to get likes, to be appreciated. Yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any kind of techniques or ideas or how do you handle dealing with that? It's such a real thing. It's such a, again, like such just that you're asking that question is so beautiful to me. I feel like, um, you know, I also grew up skateboarding, you know, and so I watch a lot of, <laughs> I watch a, a weirdly a lot amount of like skateboarding movies and stuff. Um, and, you know, those kids, like a lot of them, they were, when skateboarders started to get big again in the 80s, they were, I'm thinking like Tommy Guerrero and some of these guys, they hated contests. They were good at it, but they hated it. And they hated it because they knew that the spirit of the thing that they loved was being kind of destroyed. Um, 
because it, you know, like the thing that they're doing has nothing to do with like being the first, getting the first place. It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with being the best. It has to do with like making beautiful shit with your friends, you know? And um, so I, I don't know <laughs> what, <laughs> how to do it, but I do like just talking about like basketball. Um, you know, I, I grew up playing basketball and football and I coached a lot of basketball and, you know, I'm still kind of very close to it. Um, I still play a little bit. I just, I'm sort of adamant that that real basketball is pickup basketball. There's this other thing that can be great and, it, and it's fun and it's all these other things and this is where you can compete and you do all this other, compete in this other particular way. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, I love playing high school basketball, you know, I love it. Um, but I, I didn't love it as much as I love playing pickup ball. And I definitely wasn't as nourished as I was, as I am by playing pickup ball, in part because pickup ball has all of these sorts of, um, inside of pickup basketball are all of these ways of being that are not, you know, you kind of want to shine on a court, but you're not trying to like, you, you're ultimately trying to keep everyone playing. You're ultimately trying to keep the game going. That's what pickup basketball is about. There's no ref, you're the ref. There's no um, coach you're the coach, you know, there's no like judge. We're the judges, you know, we're the ones doing all of that. And when we're playing pickup ball. So there's all of these ways of, you know, I can like, there's an essay in the book about pickup basketball you can read. But I do want to say, I would say if you are interested in pursuing those things in these places, more like regulated spaces, like school, um, et cetera, I would say also just remember to like keep your hand in these other places where it's not regulated in that way. Or like the sort of notion of approval or success is different where there's where these other sort of um, metrics of how the things are going good for you, you know? So it's not necessarily someone telling you, oh yeah, you're the top of the class, but it might just be someone like that you're just sitting around writing together, you know? Might be something like that. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for that you. question. That's a great Thank question. Thank you. Can we keep that applause going for our Mokdad and Roske? Thank you so much for coming, and thank you so much to National Writers Series for helping making us making this happen. Hope we can do it again in the future. Thanks, everybody. Drive safe. <laughs>